two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I am your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we're looking at unconventional music biopics. Now, there is a vocal contingent out there of uh, critics and movie fans who believe that the biopic in general, and the music biopic in particular, is the worst movie genre ever. For the record, I do not belong in that camp. At its best, I think the music biopic is a celebration of art, which is something I am always in favor of. However, that said, I will concede that like every other genre, and I want to emphasize that like every other genre, the music biopic does have its share of cliches. So it's always nice to come across movies that are willing to play around with the genre uh, well with any genre the music biopic in particular since we're talking about that and we're talking about two movies that play around with the genre uh today which are from the year 2007 i'm not there directed and co-written by Todd Haynes, and from 2015, Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Pollard. Both are biopics of music icons who uh, became known in the 1960s. I'm Not There is about Bob Dylan, and Love and Mercy is about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys fame. Uh, Both movies are also named after rather obscure songs from both artists. I'm Not There is a song that Bob Dylan originally recorded in uh, his uh, Basement Tapes catalog, though it wasn't released on the first Basement Tapes album. It was only available on bootlegs for a long time and then made available, I think, officially right before the film came out. While Love and Mercy is the name of a song that Brian Wilson wrote for one of his solo albums. And both movies, as it happens, were co-written by Oren Moverman. Also, um, this is going to be true not only for these two movies, but the movies we're going to be discussing in the next few episodes. Uh, We will, since these are both about music, and since the movies in the next few episodes are dealing with music in a major way, we'll be talking about the music as much as the movie. And then also, um, for both these movies and subsequent movies we'll be talking about, Uh, They fall on either side of the question, do you cast an actor and hope they're musically talented or can at least fake it? Or do you cast a musician and see if you can get them to act? This is another fight that I have no dog in, as uh, you'll see that in these two movies and subsequent movies... Uh, We'll see examples of both of those in play, but that's all further down the line. For now, Claude is going to give us the plot description for I'm Not There. Yes, I am. Well, the credits tell us that the film is inspired by the music and many lives of Bob Dylan. And that's important because what we're getting is several stories of different people, all of which are drawn from real life events in Dylan's life with a few bits of artistic license taken. In addition, we're going to jump back and forth between the stories and the various timelines, some of which overlap anyway. Having said all that, I'm going to take the stories mostly one at a time here. So we start with a point of view shot as a performer navigates his way through the backstage area and out uh, onto the stage uh, to perform. Then we cut to that same performer riding his motorcycle just before he crashes. At any rate, we see the crash victim is Jude Quinn, who's played by Kate Blanchett, who's having an autopsy performed on him. Now, obviously, Bob Dylan didn't die in his motorcycle crash in 1966. So that's where, you know, 
artistic license comes from. We jump to 1959, where a 12-year-old African-American boy played by Marcus Carl Franklin is riding the rails. He meets two older hobos, and he introduces himself as Woody Guthrie. Woody carries around a guitar labeled This Machine Kills Fascists, as did the real Woody Guthrie. The other hobos recognize that he's taken on the singer's name, but they don't seem to know about the guitar's label. Woody is traveling across country to fulfill his dream to be a singer. Woody tells the other hobos his life story, and we go into a flashback. We see that Woody once tried to perform with a circus, but he gets mocked and kicked out, and we don't quite know why. He later meets and befriends an African-American family. He sings Tombstone Blues with two of the men, and Woody later has dinner with the family, where he is lectured by the family matriarch about his repertoire being all old songs that he can't relate to personally. She reminds him of the goings-on of the world and tells Woody to live your own time, child. Sing about your own time. Later that night, Woody leaves the home and a note thanking the family for their hospitality, and he hops aboard a freight train. He falls asleep, and he is wakened by thieves who are looking for money, and they try to rob Woody, but he gets away by jumping off the train and into a river. As he's drowning, he sees a woman in the water and then imagines himself to be being eaten by a whale. Woody wakes up in a hospital. He'd been rescued by a white couple who took him in for treatment. He had some water in his lungs, but he's otherwise okay, and the couple take him into their home to temporarily care for him. And he performs when the ship comes in for them and some of their friends. Shortly after that, they get a call from a juvenile correction center in Minnesota, which Woody had escaped from. Woody has to leave the couple's home, and he jumps on a train, which brings us back to the beginning of the story with the two other hobos. Woody learns that the real Woody Guthrie is dying in a hospital in New Jersey, so he jumps off the train at the appropriate time. He gets into the room by telling the nurse he's delivering flowers, then sits vigil at Guthrie's bedside, and he is last seen playing a song for his comatose idol. In the second story, an artist is being interrogated and identifies himself as Arthur Rimbaud. Uh, he's played by Ben Wishaw, and he is named after the French poet that Dylan idolized. All of Arthur's appearances take place in this empty room, and much like the interviews that Dylan endured in the 1964-65 period, he's evading questions, he's reading prose pieces, he's telling people stories of his life, and Basically, this character becomes kind of a narrative glue that holds a lot of the other stories together. He's mostly a transitional device. Next, we get a documentary-style story telling us about Jack Rollins, who's played by Christian Bale, who appears to be from Dylan's early 60s Greenwich Village era. Jack's story is mostly told by people who knew him, especially a folk star named Alice, played by Julianne Moore, who is probably based on Joan Baez. He's also praised by many folk fans who refer to his songs as anthems and protest songs, while Jack himself refers to them as finger-pointing songs. When Jack accepts the Tom Paine Award at a civil rights meeting shortly after the uh, JFK assassination, well, he's kind of drunk and he insults the people in attendance. And then he claims that he saw something in JFK's assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, which he also saw in himself. Excuse me. The audience is obviously shocked and they boo Rollins out of the room. A still outraged Rollins is seen dismissing folk and protest music in front of the press, although we also hear that he apologizes about a week later. Later in 1974, uh, 11 years after the Civil Rights Award, Jack Rollins has apparently become a born-again Christian and goes by Pastor John. We learn that Rollins went to California with his girlfriend to a church for Bible studies and is later reborn and becomes a preacher. Pastor John is last seen giving testimonies to the fellow church members and sings his gospel song, Pressing On. We get the story of actor Robbie Clark, played by Heath Ledger. Robbie tells his life story from the first time he met Claire. Uh, That's Charlotte Gainsborough playing her. And incidentally, that's the woman that Woody imagined underwater earlier. This is uh, He meets her in a Greenwich Village diner where his fascination with her is mostly because she's a French heritage. Claire is a combination of the real-life Susie Rotolo, that was Dylan's girlfriend from the early 60s, and Dylan's wife, Sarah Lowndes. Uh, The relationship between the two becomes serious as they are seen making love for the first time in their apartment and going for motorcycle rides. Robbie and Claire are later seen at the premiere of his film Grain of Sand, which was disappointing to Claire and to the audience. One night, Robbie's marriage begins to go downhill as he has a party with his friends at his home and Claire spots him with another woman. The relationship continues to deteriorate as Claire notices Robbie's misogynist attitude, insinuating that guys and chicks are different and chicks could never be poets. Robbie leaves the family for a while to film a new action 
action thriller movie of his. And during his absence, Claire attempts to get a hold of Robbie on the phone, but doesn't answer as he's seen coming out of the shower and seeing another woman. Claire tells Robbie she's going to leave him, but they make love one last time. Robbie comes home to bring Claire's family pictures from his house. Uh, Robbie and Claire are later seen in court where they gain 50-50 custody of their children. And the last time we see Robbie, he is seen visiting his kids and taking them on a boat trip. The divorce is done, but there seems to be a little bit of affection between them. Now we come back to Jude Quinn as he attends the Newport Folk Music Festival. Quinn comes on with a band and at first imagines himself in the band pulling machine guns out and mowing down the crowd. But what really happens is that Quinn launches into the rocking Maggie's Farm. June is... Jude is heavily booed by the outraged fans as a man backstage attempts to cut the stage power with an axe, but he is stopped by security guards, and that's a reference to Pete Seeger's claim at the time that if he'd had an axe, he'd have cut the power. A number of folks fans are seen expressing their disappointment rather, on Jude's new turn as a rock star, and he's considered a sellout. Jude flies over to England on tour and he is seen at a press conference where he is asked questions such as how many folk singers are there and are you trying to change the world? Later in Jude's uh, London hotel room, he's confronted by a waiter who threatens him with a knife because of his departure from protest music. The man is knocked out by Jude's lover with a bottle and carried out of the room. Jude is next apparently using drugs with the Beatles, but he is interrupted by reporters and people asking him ridiculous questions. He's confronted by Keenan Jones, a British journalist played by Bruce Greenwood. Jude is then taken in a car by his friends and by Keenan Jones as his condition from drugs begins to have an effect on him. The group then meets the famous poet Allen Ginsberg, who's played by David Cross, and he hits it off immediately with Quinn. In fact, we get an interesting scene with them later on as they stand at the foot of a large crucifix and they talk to Jesus. Keenan Jones later asks Jude if he cares about people and what he sings every night, to which Jude replies, how can I answer that if you've got the nerve to ask me? Jude just leaves the car and walks off. Quinn is seen performing Ballad of a Thin Man with its refrain of something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And it's more like a video at this point than a plot line because throughout we see Keenan Jones having hallucinations that are in keeping with the song's lyrics. After Jude is finished at the concert singing the song, several outraged fans shout, Judas! Jude replies, I don't believe you. The fans rush the stage and Jude, and he narrowly escapes with the band. Mr. Jones gets a yearbook from Jude Quinn's high school years in order to reveal Quinn's true identity, although the picture shows a young Jack Rollins. Jude is back in his apartment where he sees Keenan Jones on television revealing that he is really Aaron Jacob Edelstein and he was a middle-class Jewish kid that never left Hibbing, Minnesota before high school. The revelation destroys Jude. Jude later has a party where he invites his friends, his band, and Coco Rivington, an ex-lover who is now dating a friend of his. Jude is seen using drugs and getting drunk as Jude insults Coco in front of her lover. Coco is humiliated and she runs downstairs in embarrassment. As he continues to verbally savage anyone in the nearby area, Jude's condition from all the drugs he's been taking deteriorates and he finally vomits on his friend's lap. Jude's friends carry him outside into his car and they take him to a hospital. Soon, Jude is seen passed out on the floor with his friends staring down at him. Allen Ginberg is saying he's been in so many psyches, which this indicates that he's moved on to another life. The story then cuts back to the motorcycle wreck showing Jude laid out violently on the ground. Jude is last seen in his car addressing the camera directly saying, everyone knows I'm not a folk singer. The last story we get, and the one that seems to be the most aware of the others, involves Billy McCarty, played by Richard Gere, who seems to be reflecting on the other Dillons. Billy is an aged loner, seemingly of the Old West, who lives on the edge of a town called Riddle. Billy is first seen waking up to the barking of his dog, Henry. He takes this dog outside and ties his leash to a fence, but the dog manages to run away. Billy is then forced to look for her in the woods, but does not catch her. Yes, Henry is a she. Billy then has flashbacks of his past life of the Robbie Clark persona when the marriage failed. He looks over a beautiful mountain view, but he catches flashes of unrest and glimpses Vietnam and other violence in his mind's eye. Later on, he rides out to the uh, highway and he runs into his friend Homer. Homer is selling some of his old belongings, and he tells Billy that old man Pat Garrett is destroying Riddle County, and about the suicides of the depressed people, as well as some murders, including a young girl named Ms. Henry. 
Billy then goes to Riddle County to pay his respects to Ms. Henry and Mr. Montgomery for their services. The townspeople are celebrating Halloween, but nearby the funeral services are being held outdoors as a band sings Going to Acapulco. That's being performed by Jim Janes and Calexico. After the services, Pat Garrett, played again by Bruce Greenwood, arrives and confronts the town people. Billy puts on a Halloween mask to disguise himself and tells Garrett to stay clear of Riddle County. Garrett asks what his name is, and Billy replies, William. When Garrett asks him to show his face, Billy then takes off his mask, and he's recognized by Garrett. We even get a quick flashback of when Garrett was Keenan Jones. Garrett has Billy arrested and taken to the county jail, and Billy escapes from jail with Homer's help and runs to the running trains as Billy catches a ride. Homer stays behind and gives his farewell to Billy, and as Billy's on the train, he sees Henry chasing after him, and he calls for her, but she doesn't catch up with the train in time. And Billy has to say, goodbye, my lady. On the train, Billy finds a dusty old guitar reading, This Machine Kills Fascists, the same guitar he had back when he was Woody Guthrie. Billy then sits on the train and he plays the guitar. And Billy's final words are, when I wake, I'm one person. When I go to sleep, I know for certain I'm somebody else. I don't know who I am most of the time. It's got like you got yesterday, today, and tomorrow all in the same room. There's no telling what's going to happen. And the train then rides off. The film ends with a clip of Bob Dylan playing his harmonica from the documentary Eat the Document. The audio fades away, and then the picture fades away as well. So, Claude. Yes. Are you now, or have you ever been... <laughs> A regular reader of Rolling Stone magazine. I am now, actually. I started a subscription just a couple of months ago. Restarted, I should uh, say. Okay. So I got into Rolling Stone when I first started in college. We're talking 1986 here. Now, that is around the time that the magazine was considered in decline. But when you're a middle-class kid <laughs> trying to rebel, but in subtle ways so that the parental units don't notice, uh, it's as good an outlet as any just to read Rolling Stone and to uh, fashion yourself a rebel. And this being back in the mid-1980s, when magazines were still considered a big deal, at the end of the year, um, Rolling Stone, which was uh, issued every other week at the time, I don't know what it is now, but at the end of the year, for their end of the year issue, it would be really big. And near the end of the issue, the music editor, who at the time I believe was Kurt Loder, though I could be wrong about that, would do capsule reviews of all of the major albums that had come out throughout the year. And as it happened, this particular year, this particular issue, one of those capsule reviews was about Biograph, which was the name of a box set that uh, Dylan, or more likely the record company, uh, put out for Dylan. And I haven't dug out issue. I still have uh, pieces of it clipped away. But what I recall is that Loader, or as I said, whoever the music editor at the time was, wrote something along the lines of, Folky Bob doesn't exist alongside Electric Bob, nor do they exist alongside Born Again Bob, or words to that effect. And there were a couple other personas mixed in there as well. And that was a way of telling either people who were already in the know about Dylan's music, which would probably be uh, the majority of Rolling Stone readers, since Rolling Stone, you could argue, was almost started because its uh, editor and publisher, John Wenner, wanted to meet Dylan, among others. Or for people like me, who sort of knew about Dylan, but not a lot. Uh, letting you know that there is or was, well, still is, no one Bob Dylan. There are many facets to him, facets to his music, facets to his personality, all of which to say is 
a traditional biopic most likely would not work if you're going to tell a fictional story about Bob Dylan on film. Possibly as a miniseries, but not as a movie. And so while I have no idea how deep uh, Todd Haynes's research into Dylan was, or rather, I don't know if his research included reading that um, synopsis review of the Biograph box set. You can't argue that Haynes um, decided not to take the traditional biopic route and decided instead that the best way to tackle all of Dylan's personas was to have, you know, different actors play him and using different styles, a style to shoot those uh, segments, the styles we're going to get to in a little bit. And for the most part, I do think it works. I will admit, when I first saw this movie, having remembered uh, Hans's previous movie, Far From Heaven, which was his salute to Douglas Sirk movies. I admired the movie more than I liked, you know. Obviously, a lot of care and craft went into the movie. And again, we'll talk a little about that, a little more about that um, in a moment. But I felt that Haynes was more into the fact that Dylan changed personas so much than into what Dylan was actually saying or doing when he was in those personas. But when I saw the movie a second time, actually I watched it with his uh, director's commentary on the DVD and then watched it again without the commentary. Then I was able to get more into the movie, understand what he was going for. How about you, Claude? Well, I, I, I think this is where the perspective of being just a couple of years older than you pays off a little bit. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because, you know, I I remember a lot of the different shades of, of Dylan going on, especially like through the 70s and getting into into the 80s. And he sort of moved away for a little bit and, and then kind of coming back as, you know, part of the Wilburys and, and that whole routine. And um, I think that that uh, that was always up front when it came to when it came to the Dylan persona that 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 he was constantly reinventing himself he was constantly doing these shifts that you know there you had this Dylan and then you had electric Dylan and then you had that Dylan and then you had Christian Dylan and and you know and so it kind of makes sense to do it this way having said that I'm in the same boat as you in that at first I was like ah this is just going to be another jukebox musical isn't it and the more I watch, the more I realize, no, this is really delving into, uh, you know, the actual life of Bob Dylan, even though it's not presenting Dylan as Dylan, but we are getting these separate characters, all of whom are meant to represent him. And, and so once I was able to relax into that, I enjoyed it a lot, a lot more. Uh, you know, my one complaint, and you might get into this a little bit, would be actually Kate Blanchett. And, and for, for the simple reason, because, I mean, while... She's clearly made up to look a lot like Dylan in that era. I, I also, this was also the one actor who I felt was kind of doing a Dylan impression. But other than that, I kind of liked what was going on throughout. Well, I actually liked her uh, performance. And I think what you saw as um, a Dylan impression, I think is part, uh, partly due to the fact that A, you know, Jude Quinn is uh, doing a lot of drugs at this time, which the real Dylan was doing well, yeah. a lot. And then also that, and this is something Haynes pointed out in the commentary, Every um, persona that's shown in the movie, with two exceptions, are Dylan expressing, has Dylan not only delving into the persona, but also expressing a playful side, you know, being aware 
that he's putting on a performance all the while, even if he's, you know, taking it seriously, what he's doing, he's also kind of stepping back from it and observing himself and putting and uh, being aware that he's putting on the performance. The only two exceptions, I would argue, are... Um, Jack Rollins and Pastor John, the Christian Bale characters, because um, as Haynes said about that, that those were the only two times in his in Dylan's life where he was a hundred percent sure of himself, and also when he seemed to have no sense of humor about himself. And so I think what you saw as an impression for getting back to Blanchett, I saw as um, being, you know, conscious that they're putting on uh, this persona for everybody. Anyway, let's uh, get a little into the uh, Dylan lore, um, other than what you've mentioned here, the name of the movie that Jack Rollins, or the name of the movie that's being made about Jack Rollins, I should say, since uh, Robbie Clark is the actor playing him, the name of the movie is called Grain of Sand. And that, of course, is named after uh, Dylan's song, Every Grain of Sand, uh, from his last born-again Christian album, Shot of Love. Although, personally speaking, um, I go back and forth on uh, whether you know Dylan's music is so unique that you can't really cover him, to thinking, oh, a lot of people have done great Dylan covers, some of them even better than the original. And the version of Grain of Sand that I think is the best is the one that Emmylou Harris did for her album Wrecking Ball. But so Grain of Sand is... Uh, a sort of casual Dylan reference there. Another one is something you might not know unless you watch the end credits or um, listen to the soundtrack album. Um, the only person playing Dylan who does his own singing is Marcus Carl Franklin. And by the way, the, one of the people he's performing Tombstone Blues with is uh, legendary folky Rich, Richie Haven. And the other Dylans, the ones who are shown performing, which is mostly um, the two that Christian Bale play and uh, Jude, of course, they are both dubbed. Uh, one of the people dubbing um, Dylan is a guy by the name of uh, Stephen Malkmus. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he and a couple of uh, Malkmus, yes. And he's the one who's performing um, Ballad of a Thin Man during the Jude Quinn sequence. And the group that's backing him is called the Million Dollar Basher. And Million Dollar Bashers comes from a song that was in the basement tapes, the original basement tapes uh, release called Million Dollar Bash. And then, of course, the fact that um, the reporter that Bruce Greenwood plays is named Duncan Jones. Of course, he's named after the Mr. Jones in Ballad of a Thin Man. Keenan Jones. So, Keenan Jones, yeah, yes. Dun but, Duncan uh, Jones is David but, Bowie's kid. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. But anyway, um, so you've got Dylan Lore throughout the movie, but... It never seems jokey or almost oppressive like 
another movie about uh, 60s music icons that came out the same year as I'm Not There, the uh, Beatles jukebox uh, musical movie Across the Universe, which, to be fair, is much better than the earlier jukebox musical about the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but it still misses the mark because the Beatles references there do get a bit wearying and uh, cutesy after a while, whereas the references uh, to Dylan here, for me anyway, never did. No, I think you're right in that respect. And there were a couple of times where the musical choices I really had to respect. And, and you know, one of them was, was sure, I mean, you know, the Ballad of Thin Man being used for, you know, addressing Mr. Jones directly. Um, but also there was um, earlier in the film, I think it was earlier. I don't remember, but it was in the, it was, it was in, um, it was in the same story and it's right after the Newport uh, festival. So yeah, I guess it was early in the film as well, right after the, the, the festival. And, you know, uh, Jude is getting all this grief for having changed musical styles. And the next piece of music we hear is positively fourth street, which is probably one of the best musical poison pen letters ever and it actually put a new bit of perspective on the song for me that like wow could this nobody knows who that song is about okay and putting it there had me thinking oh my gosh is this who the song is really about which i had never considered before so there were some great choices in that respect you know the the, the music always tied in very very nicely and and um and, and so I, I had to appreciate that. It did not, like I said, it started out feeling a little bit like jukebox musical, but I could really see that, that there were some careful choices made and everything seemed to, to make sense in the bigger picture. You honestly never considered the fact that Positively 4th Street was that Dylan sang F you to uh, his fans? No, actually, I, I, I really didn't. I always, I always, I, I'd always seen theories that it was pointed at like a specific person. And and there are certain huh. things uh, about that that um, that that make it that that kind of drive that home for me. So even in the long run, I was like, I still don't think it's about them. But but wow, what a good choice. <laughs> okay, well, the two songs that are not in the movie that I wish were, mm -hmm. because otherwise I do agree that the choice of Dylan's songs. And even a couple of the rare non-Dylan songs, like we hear um, during the Jude Quinn sequence, uh, the monkeys, I'm not your stepping stone. Mm -hmm. But there are two songs I wish I had made it in there. Um, Tangled Up in Blue, okay, which uh, is possibly my favorite song from my favorite Dylan album, which is Blood on the Tracks. And then also, while pressing on, which is the song that we see Pastor John singing, and by the way, the voice there is dubbed by John Doe of the band X, mm -hmm. um, is decently done. The one song from his Born Again Christian period that I think really does stand out is uh, Gotta Serve Somebody. Yes, and I was I expecting think, to hear that. <laughs> and I think it was a missed opportunity to show that because although they do have a uh, gospel choir backing Pastor John when he's singing, pressing on at one point, I think you would have gotten a more fuller and richer sounding gospel choir backing him if he did got to serve somebody. And it's a great song. Even if you... Um, do not believe in um, Christianity at all. Just as a song, it's so musically strong. I think the other song that I that I would that I expected to hear would have been "My Back Pages," which also took place during the Jack Rollins sequence, and that's the one that has the refrain, "I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now," and that would have gone so nicely along with the scene where he is receiving the Tom Paine Award, and that's one of the things he's talking about is that dichotomy between the old and the young. And so I kind of expected that song to pop up there. So I'm absolutely with you on Serve Somebody, you know, as far as the other one. Okay, we've got a little bit of a difference, but I can understand where you're coming from on that. Okay, yeah. 
it would have it would have been nice. Although I do love my back pages too. Although it maybe Haynes decided that was a little too obvious. Now the um, personas of uh, Dylan. Um, are also illustrated not just through the music, but also through the different styles that Haynes decides to shoot the movie with. And the cinematographer on the movie, by the way, is uh, Haynes' longtime cinematographer, Edward Lachman. And the film editor was another frequent collaborator of his, Jay Rabinowitz. Now, um, you have a combination here of shooting in both black and white, particularly the Jude Quinn sequences, although also the opening credits are done in black and white, and then some other scattered... Oh, and the um, Arthur Rimbaud sections are in black and white as well. Yes. And you've got some scattered black and white uh, sequences here and there. But what Haynes was doing was also trying to recreate the styles of certain movies from the time that Dylan was famous. For example, um, while there is a bit of the great D.A. Pennebaker documentary on Dylan from the 60s, Don't Look Back, the uh, Jude Quinn sequence owes a lot to Fellini's Eight and a Half, Mm -hmm. particularly the party sequence that uh, Jude goes to, that Jude is in, where he's uh, alternatingly trying to um, hit on Coco and insult her. Coco, by the way, is played by Michelle Williams, who was married to Heath Ledger at the time. And also the... Uh, Robbie Clark sequences are heavily influenced by Godard, particularly um, his movies uh, Masculine, Feminine, and Two or Three Things I Know About Her. Uh, In the way, for example, the scene where Robbie and um, the Charlotte Gainsborough character... Uh, Claire, the way the two of them are talking in the restaurant, that's very much out of masculine feminine. And then also the Jude Quinn sequence is a little influenced by that. The scene where um, Jude and the band uh, basically machine gun the audience is taken from a brief snippet from two or three things I know about her. And then the Richard Gere sequence is, uh, of course, based on the one movie that Dylan appeared in that um, is probably the most artistically successful, and that's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, directed by Sam Peckinpah. Although we should mention that in that movie, Dylan did not play either of those roles. Uh, They were played by James Coburn and Chris Christopherson, respectively. Christopherson, by the way, narrates I'm Not There. Dylan, in that movie, played a character called, appropriately enough, Alien. And I say that uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is the most artistically successful of the movies that Dylan appeared in as an actor, even though he didn't really appear in a lot of movies as an actor. And he actually only appeared in uh, three altogether. That one, um, a movie he did in the 80s called Hearts of Fire, about which the less said, the better. (laughs) You're still hurting over that one, aren't you? (laughs) Yes, I am. And then a movie he did... In uh, 2003, called Mastin Anonymous, which is uh, what I would categorize an interesting failure. But anyway, um, the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid sequence, uh, by the way, another thing that Hans does during that is, in addition to Bruce Greenwood, 
He has a couple other actors who appeared in one of the earlier segments appear in this one as well. Marcus uh, Carl Franklin appears in it. And then also, I believe, Peter Friedman, who plays the um, label owner that um, Jack of the label that uh, Jack Rollins released his finger pointing songs to. He appears briefly in that sequence as well. And 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 also, you know, I I had a little bit of a flash on the the band that was singing in in the in the band show. I thought for a moment that that was actually Heath Ledger, just for a brief moment. So if nothing else, they've got him looking a little bit like him too. And so I don't know whether like you know Ledger just wasn't available at that point to do it, and they just had to get this other guy or or what was going on. But but I really had to stop and look and stare, and I was like, eh, maybe could be because the guy had makeup on his face, so it was tough to tell. And and so I finally had to just go back and study the credits and realize, no, it's not the same person. But wow, there, there's enough of a resemblance to make you. And by this point, you've already seen the other people, uh, and so you realize okay. that that these characters are kind of reappearing in Billy's life. And, and so, yeah, this is a strong possibility. Well, the Richard Gere sequence is one that divided a lot of critics. I know uh, Anthony Lane said it was that part that basically made him throw up his hands and uh, say nuts to this movie, even <laughs> though there were parts of it he did like a lot. But I think that the segment is crucial to the movie for two reasons. One, it sort of um, captures as well the another part of Dylan Lore, which was his uh, ill-fated uh, Rolling Thunder review tour, or rather I should say the tour itself was not ill-fated. The movie that was made about the tour, yeah. Ronaldo and Clara, was uh, ill-fated, although the documentary that Dylan and Martin Scorsese did about that, Rolling Thunder Review, which is available on Netflix, is uh, very entertaining. If uh, you subscribe to Netflix, I highly recommend that, because you've got that whole circus-like atmosphere, which was part of the tour, and everyone dressing in clown makeup and things like that. That was one of the things that Dylan actually did on the tour. And also, at one point, Jean Baez dressed as Dylan at a couple of the concerts. And uh, she said that she was uh, very surprised how deferential everyone was towards her when she was dressed as Dylan. And then another reason why I think the gear sequence is crucial, and this is one of the things that I was hesitant on the movie about when I first saw it, is the fact that the gear sequence, you've got a lot of biblical imagery in there. Um, not something that you can point to specific verses so much, but the way that um, Gear's character is talking to other people and the trial that uh, Pat Garrett is having um, towards the townspeople, um, all of that, you know, is indirectly influenced by the Bible. And that points up to the fact that, for me anyway, if you believe that Dylan's uh, interest in the Bible and interest in um, God only came about when he became a born-again Christian and then a Zionist, then you really don't get Dylan because biblical imagery was in his lyrics throughout the sixth. Sure. And the other thing is that although Richard Gere is being or is portraying Billy as an older person, you know, this was actually drawn from a period in his life in between the 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 two stories of of uh, Jack Rollins, okay, between the Jack Rollins and the Father John. Okay, there was a period where 
basically Dylan withdrew and he, he stayed out of the public eye for a couple of years and he, he lived, uh, I think it was up near Woodstock actually in New York. Yeah. And so, um, and, and that clearly didn't work out very well. And it wasn't long after that, that he, uh, made that religious turn. So it's, it's really like from a timeline standpoint, what you got is Jack Rollins, then Billy McCarty, then Father John. So it actually makes sense that the story itself starts to take a little bit more of a biblical turn until he gets to the point where he meets up with his, this friend of his, and he goes into the uh, Bible study course out in Stockton, California. Right. Now, um, one segment I want to talk about in a little detail as well, and you made allusions to this when talking about it, is the Robbie Clark sequence. And this was a particular choice by hand. You know, a lot of biopics, no matter how formulaic they may be, these days will focus on an artist's fall. And this is the segment that does that the most, as Haynes wanted to show that, yes, Dylan was this creative genius, but when it came to woman, he was... I mean, to be fair, he was no, maybe been no less or greater an asshole than many of the other male music uh, icons of the '60s. But certainly, none, certainly, very few of them publicly, anyway, said the things that Dylan said about women, as we see in, uh, I think it's a conversation at a picnic table yeah. that um, Robbie and Claire are having with a couple of friends where he goes off about um, women and that they can't be poets. Uh, in real life, Dylan said a lot worse about women. And that wasn't just confined to the 70s. I mean, he said it throughout his career. So this was Haynes's way of illustrating all of that. Yeah, I'm letting that lie. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Now, a couple other um, things that I want to mention here is that Haynes, this was not the first time that he had done a music-related movie. The very first movie he did was a short movie called Superstar, The Life of Karen Carpenter. And it is a movie that is only available to watch, I believe, on uh, YouTube. Is that the one that's all Barbie dolls? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Uh, he tells the entire life of Karen Carpenter uh, through Barbie dolls. And that is only available on YouTube, I believe, because he did not get permission from um, the Carpenters to use the music. Correct. And when Karen's brother uh, saw that, saw the movie, he was not pleased. And so he uh, filed suit against it. And if you've ever seen it, it's does start out you do start out thinking okay this is a novelty but then you gradually get into it it's pretty good yeah (laughs) yeah maybe it's also because the album that came out in the 90s where a lot of grunge artists um covered the carpenters music uh, called if I the album's called If I Were a Carpenter. After listening to that, and then I saw the movie, I thought, okay, yeah, this makes sense. And then he did a movie which was supposed to be a biopic about David Bowie called uh, Velvet Goldmine, but uh, Bowie would not give Haynes permission to use his persona or his music, and. That movie, by the way, also starred Christian Bale as the Bowie character. And while that wasn't the only problem the movie had, it certainly didn't help. But here, although Haynes did not get to meet Dylan, he wrote a letter to Dylan and Dylan agreed to let Haynes do it and gave him permission to use the music. And obviously, that's such a crucial element to the movie. If yeah. uh, Haynes had to recreate the style of Dylan's music, I don't think the movie would have worked at all. 
No, it, it absolutely would not. And I kind of wonder, because Dylan recently, and I'm thinking like in the last year or two, he actually sold off his catalog for, you know, something like, you know, $10 bazillion or whatever it was. And not the only artist who's done that. <laughs> no, he's not. But he was among the f- among the first of the really big names to do so. And um, I, I just kind of wonder if he if there would have been any more difficulty if if Haynes had tried to make the film since then, just because now it's somebody else holding the rights to it. Yeah, no. And then um, one other thing I want to mention real quick, um, besides or two things, actually. Besides praising the uh, performers, all of whom, I, even Kate Blanchett, I think do a very good job, not just the people playing Dylan, but also people playing the supporting roles, I think all do a good job. A lot of the Jude Quinn sequence, in addition to being based on Don't Look Back, and then also the Jack Rollins sequences, uh, those are all partly inspired by an interview that Dylan gave with uh, Nat Hentoff, who I first knew as a uh, someone who was uh, opinion columnist, particularly a First Amendment uh, advocate, but who was also a folk and jazz music critic. And the interview that he did with Dylan, uh, they edited together so that Dylan was basically asking questions of himself, or it se- that seemed to be what it was like in the interview. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's in a couple of collections of uh, Dylan interviews, and I think that's uh, really it's really worth reading. And then the other thing I want to mention real quick um, before we wrap this up is the movie is pretty circular in its storytelling because it begins or the credits begin uh, with events leading right up to the motorcycle crash that caused Dylan to become a recluse for a few years before he came back and uh, came back with the album John Wesley Harding. And then it ends with the same crash. Now, we don't get to see the crash. We just see the motorcycle riding along on the road. And then I think at the end, we hear something. But it's if you, this is another part of the Dylan lore that's put in the movie in a subtle way. Yeah, I, I think that that there are there are definitely times when you're hearing things that that uh, that, that kind of change your perspective, and so by that time you get to that point in the film, you're you hear something and you're not a hundred percent sure that it is the motorcycle crash. It could be, it could be just some other thing. It's like, it's like kind of like Billy looking over the mountains um, and, and, you know, hearing the explosions, that kind of thing. So yeah, you hear something happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Ha 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 ha. You were waiting for that. Weren't you? <laughs> Had that in my pocket. <laughs> so is there anything else that you want to add before I wrap this up? Nothing that can't wait till part two. No. Okay, so we're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about Love and Mercy. 